You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Colonel Retired Liam Collins. Colonel Collins is my old boss as the founding director of the Modern War Institute. For this podcast, we're going to talk about a trip that Colonel Collins and I did to Ukraine and into Kiev to study the Battle of Kiev. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. So this is part one of a two-part series I think that we should do, right? We just got back less than two weeks ago from a whirlwind tour of study. It wasn't a you know, tourism. It was a study of the Battle of Kiev that I think is the most, in my words, and you maybe you don't think the same, but the most decisive battle of the modern era. And by decisive, I mean the outcomes of that battle, the Battle of Kiev, while there were plenty of battles going on at the exact same time due to Russia's illegal invasion into Ukraine, but the Battle of Kiev had a decisive impact on the strategic goals of both sides. So Russia was not able to take Ukraine to remove its government. So would you agree with that statement? Yeah, but without a doubt. I mean, it's significant, right? Because that was Russia's hope, right? If they could have overthrown the government of uh, the Zelensky government and installed this uh, Russian favorable regime, the war likely would have been over and, and they would have, you know, either annexed large portions or had, you know, a, a satellite state for lack of any better term in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about our trip, who we met with, the things we discovered, the the new things we discovered, because of course we did our literary review. We did a lot of research before going to make sure we knew what we wanted to see, the questions we wanted to ask. And sometimes that's really the starting point of a research trip. Like when I went into Susha and Nagorno-Karabakh last year, having the right questions and knowing what happened according to kind of the wider audiences and according to what we can watch from the outside world, but to actually get on the ground and ask the people that fought there the right questions. So if anybody doesn't know, the Battle of Kiev started on 24th February when Russia invaded Ukraine and generally ended around 31 March, early April. And this will all be in our report that will come over and we'll talk about it on the next podcast, really the more structured, this is the way we see the Battle of Kiev, what, how it happened or the major moments and hear the lessons for the broader military community. So I'd, l- I'd like to talk about our trip as in actually going into a combat zone, an active combat zone to study a battle and why we went. And I don't want to put words in, in your mouth. So I, I wanted to get in there as soon as possible because of the fact that so many of the people that would have been in these positions are fighting and may not be around anymore. That's my reason. What's yours? Yeah, no, I mean, without a doubt, I mean, you and I had talked about this when the war kicked off. I mean, we wish we could have been over there observing it during the conflict itself. But as soon as it opened up, that was the goal to get over there to, to understand this because, you know, the news is covering it. We've got social media covering this war like like no other. But yet our understanding of it collectively, I think, is actually arguably worse than what has been in the past because it's just a bunch of you know, 30 second videos is what we're getting and no one's really putting it all together. So we really wanted to get over there to understand that battle, as you said, before people move on, memories fade, you know, while the battle is still fresh, while there's hulks of tanks on the battlefield and they haven't done all the cleanup. So definitely reasons to get over there early. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, of course the research is important, but the getting on the ground to me, and I, I hope this is what we get to talk about, even surprising me, and these are the, the moments that I get on every trip I take, when you walk some of this ground, there is a lot lost in not having been there. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, you've got to go on the ground to witness it. It's why, you know, going back, you know, several hundred years, why militaries do staff rides so they can understand those battles in a way that you just can't in the classroom. Yeah. Okay, let's get to it. So you and I traveled to Poland, crossed the border, which was a unique experience with you know, just our backpacks, met our driver, and then immediately made our way just based on timing to Lviv. Is there anything that stood out to you on our trip from just crossing into Ukraine and making our way to Lviv? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, I've been to Ukraine dozens of times before from 2016 to 2018 when General Abizade was a senior defense advisor to Ukraine, went back and forth with him advising the Ukrainians. But this was obviously the first time I've gone through Poland because you can't fly into a country at war. Uh, and one of the things noticed, you know, going across the border actually was there was more people coming into the country than out of it between the two times we crossed the border. So that tells you what the Ukrainian people think of how the war is going, right? A lot of them fled earlier on, not knowing the outcome, how things would turn out, but more are returning than are leaving. Uh, so that's telling of, of the war at the present state. Uh, the other thing is, right, you, you, you would see checkpoints all over the highway, right, at pretty much across the entire country. Man checkpoints, some unmanned where they can they can occupy them quickly with obstacles that are ready to put out all the way to Lviv and ultimately to Kiev. Um, so that was probably the other significant thing. And, and then, you know, bridges down in certain locations, but bypasses that the Ukrainians have created. So things are relatively back to normal around the capital and the western part of the country. They're able to repair that war damage and get their economy up and running. Yeah, I agree with you. I was actually surprised. Not that... Again, I had some idea of where the war was at the time from the moment we crossed over. Not It wasn't long before we hit our first checkpoint as Ukraine as a whole is on a war footing. And I think I felt that even in Lviv, which felt like a city, a vibrant city. Of course, it's a vibrant city where air raids go off often, uh, where the curfew is still in place really to protect civilians, but also help with security. And then I think the other aspect of Lviv that surprised me was when it was pointed out to us that there were you know, a lot of Ukrainian soldiers in uniforms with their families because the city itself is a bit of a kind of R&R location now that the war is continuing on, you have to pull troops back, give them a break, and then you know return them. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, right? I mean, this is high-intensity conflict, a brutal brutal war with their, you know artillery barrages constantly. You just can't keep troops on the front lines for an extended period of time. I mean, uh, I mean that's not the downplay the wars we fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, but but those were kind of more episodic, you know, a firefight here and then, and then periods of, of nothing. But this is, you know, pretty consistent for those troops that are on the front line. And so you need to rotate them out on a more frequent basis than you might think with some of the less conventional wars that we fought recently. And the country is still under martial law, right? So no adult, you know, a male of, the, of these certain ages can leave the country. And that's what we kind of saw going in was a lot of female and children returning to Ukraine. It is still a, a nation, a complete nation at war. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, another example, right? As we were driving into Kiev, there were no road signs. Most of them were taken down and, and the signs that weren't taken down were painted over. Uh, so what the Ukrainians had done is right, the Russians didn't have good maps. And so what they were trying to do was, was make it difficult for the Russians to navigate. Yeah, I was going to comment on that. That was probably the most... 
one, just the, the battle damage farther out than I could have even imagined the vehicles and the, the Russian tanks and other vehicles, although they've done a lot of cleanup, but you can tell how much of the damage of the war, how far out it was of Kiev as we were driving in. But yeah, absolutely. I, when we saw the first signs completely spray painted and there, there's none and they did them all. The, the fact that they didn't have that access to these road signs that even I and war have used admittedly a few times saying, you know, this city's that way. It's just a confirmation. The Ukrainians took that all away from them. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it, anything that was going to make it more difficult for the Russians to achieve the objectives, the Ukrainians were doing those kind of things. And I'm not sure a lot of people would, would necessarily think of that or do it on scale. Right. So now we're past, we, you know, we had to stay in Lviv because of the, the basically our trajectory wouldn't get us to Kiev before the curfew kicked in. So we overnighted, drove into Kiev and we went, and we went straight into engagement just because of our limited time. And we went straight into roads leading into Bucha. So we actually stopped at a, at a key road intersection well outside of Bucha where we were met Ukrainian military personnel and discussed a basically anti-armor ambushes that were happening that far you know leading into bucha and it was i think the story was a a dad and a son combo with an rpg if i remember right yeah i mean it, it, it kind of understand as the as, as the war unfolded kind of just give you a broad overview so on right on the 24th of uh, february russian mechanized forces crossed the borders from multiple directions right from crimea to the south from the east and we're, we're really really focused on this conversation today from belarus right down to Kiev from the uh, east and west sides of the Dnipro river and part of that invasion one of their main efforts was was seizing it the hostile airfield northwest of Kiev, just outside of the city limits Right as a as a basically a location, you know, for logistical resupply to support these mechanized forces that are coming across the border. Uh, so that was the nearest fighting. On, and, and then, right, you know, rocket strikes on on airfields in Kiev and in and, and main centers. But you know, the air assault landing at the Hostomel Airport with several hundred Russian you know, VDV, their airborne forces. That was a main effort on the twenty fourth. Right, and I think this was you know the further research into it. One was that. So let's do it chronologically. On twenty fourth February, we knew about this airfield seizure, almost attempting to create an air bridge. And there were transport planes in other locations, supposedly ready to move into Hostomel airfield. But it wasn't like that was the only operations that the Russians did a part of this plan to take key. The mechanized forces that were making a ground movement from Belarus and not just down through the Chernobyl Pass, north-south road, but also another significant MSR out of Belarus and, and I always jack up the names, Radovini, Radki, that those are making their way down at the same time that this battle over this key airfield is happening. Right. And so on the 24th, for whatever reason, the Ukrainians definitely had a war plan that they were ready to execute as soon as the Russians launched. But I, I think probably for political reasons, they didn't want to have that defensive formation into place for Either they didn't want to get the, the population all worked up or somehow they thought that might appear as offensive or something to Russia, though I don't know how it could be. You're just in defensive position to defend your sovereign territory. But for whatever reason, they were the, the Ukrainians were really not in position on the 24th when the Russians launched the strike, but they had their forces that were ready to immediately go into those positions. And so that's why you kind of see the initial battle play out and why Russia was able to make some initial gains 
you know, moving towards those populated areas. And as you described, right, kind of on the east and the west side of the river. But the Ukrainians, you know, quickly executed their plan and were in position pretty quickly. And so really what it is, is the regular forces, primarily from the second, uh, 72nd mechanized, defending Kiev proper, right, that basically at the city limits, and then really kind of relying on this group of informal volunteers operating kind of forward of that main defensive line uh, outside of the city limits. Right. And I think that that's, that was important. That was our first stop. It, it was a irregular force that was a part of this defense in depth, like we've talked about. We, of course, met with the 72nd Mechanized Brigade headquarters and talked about what was in position, what wasn't. Clearly, there had been a lot of planning, but for political reasons, both on the east and the west of the Dnipro. And we just happened to be taken directly to one of the first kind of on this peri-urban space of the main city, although there were reports of sabotagers and the fog and friction of war, hard to tell. Even you and I talked to, to our friend Michael Kaufman, that would be a big part of the, the major report about what's going on inside the city as there are these small groups of personnel like deep inside the city. Being, there's firefights happening, but clearly the Russian plan are both these the airfield seizure and the rapid mounted maneuvers down from Belarus. And we can't discount the entire East fight as there is a movement coming from the Sumi region, basically coming through the countryside roads, approaching Kiev from the East to West. Yep, without a doubt. And going back to the hostile airfield, so the Russians infiltrated there, initially seized it, but within 24 hours, they lost it and, and pretty much eliminated their, their forces there when the Ukrainians attacked it with the a National Guard unit that happened to be at the airfield at the time, and then a, a counterattack by a company-sized element uh, that then retreated, or, or I shouldn't say retreated, then pulled back to establish defensive positions in Kiev proper. And then once they did that, it was pretty much, as I described before, all volunteers forward to that line. But we've, I think the, the listeners have all heard about the Territorial Defense Force of Ukraine and heard about this before the start of the war. And Ukraine has a long history of volunteers. You're really going back to being a critical part of the 2014 uh, war. And But the question was, how, how significant of a role do they play in this early defense of the nation? And how organized were they? And, and that was kind of one of the surprises. The formal Territorial Defense Force was only officially established on the 1st of January, but still had two months to kind of get its footing and so we expected it to be much more of a, a formal establishment at the start of the conflict, but that was a surprise for us. Pretty much everybody we talked to, you know, is supposed to have several hundred thousand members of this territorial defense force, but they weren't actually organized until the 31st of March or the beginning of April, really after the defense of Kiev is when they were established into formal units. Prior to that time, it was basically just a lot of civilians just showing up, getting issued a rifle, getting issued an AK and a couple magazines and no one really giving them direction. They're just moving out, self-organizing, going to defend a br bridge, defend a position, and really do what it takes to necessary to defend their nation. So that was probably the biggest surprise was this territorial defense force really wasn't organized until the beginning of April, yet the volunteers were extremely effective at defending the Russian invasion. This is one of our separate articles that we've written about the volunteers in Kiev and their role in defending this major me metropolitan city arguably on the peri-urban. And it's really hard, right? You know, before we had gone, we were kind of calling everything territorial defense and there's, you know, there's nuances in that. And these volunteers, like the ones we met in Bucha, which are the 
they had a name and it's in my notes, the Bucha Community Territorial Defense, like literally individual community defenders who are a major part of these initial moments and these this defense in depth. And, and like you said, outside, of, and I think Hostamelt and the airport does deserve its place and it will be a part of the report as a moment in this overall battle, a fight, a very critical fight, right? And it's just, whether the Russians just made a, a huge intelligence mistake to not know that there's a an element of the 4th Rapid Reaction National Guard still in the area and who happen to have access to Ukrainian artillery, who demolish this dismounted force without a lot of combat power, really firepower to send themselves. And like you said, there's this fight on day one. So Hashemel deserves this place as a moment. But then we get to Bucha and get an understanding of the number of volunteers them and, and some of the volunteers, you can't you can take a bunch of civilians and tell them to fight. But like you said, not without not a lot of direction. But the the leaders that we met on our trip who had been there were some of them had the prior military service or some time or and a couple said they had some training like a couple training events. But these veterans and I don't want to I want to make sure that we mentioned that that. Some of the leaders of these volunteer groups had had some type of military experience and then stood up to rose to the moment and became a leader in this, you know, like you said, it's not an organization. It's a, it's a group. Yeah. I mean, as you describe it, right. I mean, so they organized into, right. The formal territorial defense force, but then they also had those, right. Almost what I equate to county level national guards. And we, we visited a headquarters. It was basically just, you know, a county seat or something. And that they've turned into wartime headquarters for their volunteers that are out there fighting and defending uh, the Kiev area because, right, the main forces out on the east right now, uh, they still have to defend the city, but they're, you know, the most of the regular army has moved out to the east. And I want to bring up something else is, you know, so I think a lot of people were surprised by the, um, you know, how the war has turned out to date. Those of us that understand, you know, you know, help train the Ukrainians aren't surprised by their performance, even if we're a little bit surprised by the Russians' underperformance. But too often when people, you know, measure combat capability, all they think about is the size of a military and the number, right, counting things that are easy to count, right, the number of tanks, the number of aircrafts. But those of us that have been around war for any, any length of time understand, right, war fighting performance is a function of many things, right, strategy, tactics, the training, the operational employment, leadership, doctrine. And pretty much every one of those categories, the Ukrainians have the edge. The only place they don't is is just right the sheer size, and the Russians have the edge there. So understanding that, I think it, it makes more sense to understand how how the Ukrainians could be effective. But it, but terrain factors into that, right? As we've talked about, there was only limited right roads or, or avenues of approach routes into Kiev from Belarus because of right the low lying territory there around the Dnipro River, especially being in the spring. And so that makes it so the the Russians were pretty much restricted to roads. They couldn't go and, and try to get off the roads, or they would get stuck, as we as we actually saw in places where one of the tanks is still sitting out there at the at the whole level, you know, stuck in the mud. Uh, and so that made it easier for a smaller military to defend a large military because the Russians didn't have the ability to kind of mass at the point of conflict. And so that's important to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was so like. Even our second stop, right? So they take us to the infamous road early on, like in the early days of the Russian attempt to penetrate Kiev. And I'm an advocate as an urban warfare kind of student. The Russian never needed to surround Kiev, isolate it, 
and then achieve a foothold and start clearing it. They needed to penetrate it. They needed to get to the government building and then raise the Russian flag. So one of the stops that we were we were taken to is this road between Bucha and Erpin actually leads over one of the few bridges that the Ukrainians left open, right? So they purposely blew what we were told. You're probably special forces with a lot of engineer assistance, blew most of the bridges because if you understand the the development of Kiev and its importance with these rivers that support the agricultural aspects, which then will support the inner city, how important these gaps, these wet gap crossings, these bridges are. One of the first places we get taken to is this road that everybody knows about because they saw the the carnage of the, of the Russian convoy that for some reason took the bait to attempt to cross one of the few bridges left open that would penetrate into Erpin and into inner Kiev. And there's an ambush waiting for them. Take out the first vehicle, take out the last vehicle, bring in Ukrainian artillery and other assets and destroy up to 100 vehicles on this one narrow pass. So the analogy that I've been using, I won't put it in a report, but it, it literally was like the Ukrainians formed hot gates, you know, back to the Thermopylae and the hot gates with the Spartans and the 300, depending on how much of it you believe. But taking your terrain, if you're defending and creating these narrow entry points that you, of your choosing, which is literally doctrinal defense tactics of a def- defense in depth and obstacle use, taking out all the bridges. And we're going to talk about the very unique use of water as an obstacle, but to create these funnels, which are the only routes that the Russians can come in and how far out you do that. I did not have an understanding of how that played into the fact that how this smaller force, both of regular and irregular forces with some capabilities and, and other old school capabilities understood the terrain so much to create these hot passes or these very narrow approach and then created the kill zones. I mean, really textbook defense tactics. Right. And, and, and kind of to explain that ambush a little bit more, like you said, right, that was the one, one of the only bridges they left open going into Kiev uh, and that joined basically Bucha with the town of Erpen, which, which many of the listeners have heard about in the early stages of the war. And the kind of the fighting there is what we saw, you know, in Bravery and other places. It was kind of a mix of those volunteers, those semi or informal, unorganized, semi-organized volunteers working with regular army forces. So the regular army kind of defending at the at the bridge, but then volunteers, as, as you described it, right, they shot the first vehicle out, but it's volunteers with RPGs firing at the last vehicle. And then, you know, the artillery from the regular army just destroying dozens and dozens of vehicles that are caught in this narrow street with nowhere to go uh, because the Russians really were just kind of, as one of the one of the volunteers described it, it was more like they were on parade than they were actually advancing in a combat formation. I mean, they were, you know, very tight formation. And so once you take out the first and the last vehicle, there was nowhere for them to go with the, with the constricted streets. And so it was pretty easy fighting. But the, the key is, right, it was a combination of those regular forces with the volunteers and a combined arms fight with artillery that allowed them to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about also what aided in their basically defeating and shaping this terrain, because terrain does matter, I'm shaping this terrain to give them greater chances with limited capabilities was the flooding. Right. So you and I had had heard about the and saw the CNN reporting of the flooding of the Erpin River through the manipulation of the dam and it flooded an entire village, Dmitev, that we did go to. But as we were in places like 
European in Bucha, in Burberry, in other places, is an understanding not only how they took out bridges, and there's so many bridges that we came to. Like you said, at this point, they had formed bypasses to them. But what we didn't know and learned was how Ukrainians flooded three separate rivers. If you basically take the Irpin and head west and another major one and another major one, and it wasn't just like they blew dams. They had water engineers opening the dams with people downriver, assessing the flow rate so that it was enough, but not too much, to not only take away and rise the level of the rivers like the Irpin to where they're not easily passable, but also to flood the connecting areas between. So it's already a, a, a terrain based on the month of the year and very muddy that is hard to get off the roads. And we kind of knew that watching the battle in the beginning, but to understand now that they understood the, their terrain and the urban environment connection to the rural environments, that if you flood these rivers, it will turn the ground into a muddy marsh that no vehicle can make it through. Yeah, and that was probably the biggest surprise for me too as, as well. I mean, I was an engineer before I became a special forces officer. And, and so this is, you know, obstacles and creating defense is something that I've always thought about and things I train for. But the biggest surprise for me wasn't the fact that they blew one of the dams. It was more that it was a much more sophisticated flooding operation, right? Blowing a dam is fairly easy. You just do it and it's done. Uh, but the Ukrainians didn't want to do that because they're they're hoping to be much more successful. And if you blow the dam, then then you've got to rebuild it and it's just going to be flooded for an extended period of time. So as I described, they actually had the engineers out there controlling the water flow, people downstream trying to tell them, hey, open it up some more, close it down. That's too much because what they wanted to do was flood and soften, really soften kind of that, that lower lying areas to force the Russians onto the roads. Then they could be easy targets for artilleries or ambushes but not flood it so much that you're flooding entire villages and, and and destroying neighborhoods and livelihoods. And so that was probably the big surprise there is, is how sophisticated that operation was. Yeah. And I think another moment, I think it is another moment, again, the ambush that we know of in the Bucha and Arpin, although there's heavy con- urban combat happening in Arpin later, you know, as this progresses, as there is eventually the Russians do get into multiple locations and occupy, but in Arpin, there's some heavy urban combat that continues until basically Russian retreat. But we did go to the Mashoon, which is another part, right, of all these moments in this battle in Mashoon, which as we drove into it, was a really unique piece of terrain outside in this peri-urban that has now connected to Kiev. But you actually had to drive through like this dense, this wooded area. Like, I mean, literally the woods foot apart from each other, like a hurricane forest kind of environment. Get into the urban village of Mashoon, but understand on the backside of it is the Irpin River, is a bridge that they blew as they rose the level of the water in Irpin. But the Russians actually in the early week, second week, do actually pontoon their Irpin at Mashoon. But because they've created this narrow pass and it's got this wooded environment and there's flooding now in the city to further restrict the, even at this opening that they, the Russians have discovered would allow them to bypass some of the obstacles that are in front of them. A very small 72nd mechanized brigade element with irregulars is able to defeat a Russian penetration across their pin. And it's an example of how they used the water as an obstacle in conjunction with other obstacles, like, like the best obstacle belts are, right? That, that are reinforcing, that tie into natural terrain. But I think in the urban environment, so 
you know, of course that echelon people train wet gap crossings, but let, okay, let, let's try that wet gap crossing in a mix of urban and rural terrain. Yeah. And because they had been so successful to, to this point that the battle, the ambush you described between Irpone and Bucha, where they destroyed dozens of vehicles, that was on March 1st. And that, and, and there was, they described it, probably the Russians tried to go across that same bridge eight more times after that to no avail or for, you know, little success. They eventually got into Irpone, but not really into Kiev proper. And so it really forced the Russians to look for any routes possible that they, they, they could find. And that's something to consider for our own military. We really got rid of many of our bridging assets. We, you know, we used to have, have them in the active. We pushed them into the, into the reserves or guard. I'm not sure which, but we don't have a massive ability to conduct these river crossings that we used to have back in the eighties. And, and so I think the Russians probably much in the same way. They, they were expecting this clean ride into uh, Kiev. And when that didn't happen, they were able to, you know, do one pontoon boat across there. But partly the reason that they were unsuccessful is, Right. Even if they have technical, you know, even if they were jamming or, or, you know, doing cyber attacks to try to hit some of the Ukrainians' technical collection capabilities, the Ukrainians were very effective, right, with their civilians. And, and again, you know, I, I, I look at them as being volunteers, again, even if they're not formal fighters, and they didn't have a formal, you know, 911 call center for, for calling in Russian positions, but it was much more informal. It was just, you know, a, a phone a friend. Somebody would call a friend in the army and they would you know, get it to the right person to let them know, hey, the Russians are crossing at motion or, hey, they're, the Russians have established, you know, as we saw one house where the person, the homeowner had called and said, hey, the Russians are using it as an ammo supply point for storing tanks, tank rounds. And so the, the Ukrainians dropped artillery rounds on the house and destroyed the house and the ammo supply point. But that's, you know, why the, why partly why the, the attack at motion was unsuccessful for the Russians, that even if they could get across the the bridge initially, they weren't going to be able to maintain these gains with with the intelligence network that the Ukrainians had. Yeah, I agree with you, and 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 I can't imagine. Is I think, could you have dropped another NATO force of this small of a size into a city that big, and and they would have been able to defend it? That will be an interesting question as we go to write the report. But like you said, how many times we we talked to people who had received information from the civilian network, and I think one of them was a grandma's house. Literally, they called her a grandma and said. And, and she called in a logistical convoy sitting outside of her house on the east side of Dnipro, you know, far east of Brovary, and called it in. And they called in a strike and, and essentially blew it. And they said God saved her house because her house, despite this massive logistical fuel trucks and ammo trucks that got hit, her house at that point was pretty much untouched. But that was a pretty amazing story. Right. I mean, so yeah, I think it was 17 fuel trucks and, and ammo, ammo trucks that were there and only one person survived it who happened to be off relieving himself at the time. But it was right across the street from her house. The cook-off lasted for an hour and the fire for 24 hours. And we're not talking streets with curbs and sidewalks and right massive distances. It was a gravel road, maybe one and a half lanes wide. And I mean, that close. And yet her house remained unscathed. You know, uh, she was one of the fortunate ones for sure. Yeah, but I mean, imagine the communication networks that it took to receive this call from a grandma in, in this village and to get it to a command control center with targeting capability. That's impressive. And and that's, yeah, that was a village like you described in the Northeast, but when we're talking Booch and Airpen, right? These are small cities of, you know, 40 to 50,000 people. And so they're, you know, not large cities, but they're also not just, you know, don't think of a tiny town. And the Russians had, you know, immense problems here. And that's what led to many of their frustrations and I think a lot of their war crimes because they were just so frustrated with their with, with how 
they couldn't make any advancements in their poorly led and, and poorly disciplined soldiers. And so, you know, it's hard to imagine how they would have had any success at all in a city the size of Kiev if, if they could barely make advances through smaller cities like Bucha and Irpin. Yeah, they definitely didn't bring the size of force they would have needed. Even if the, the city would have been open, they, they still didn't bring enough forces. But I don't want to discount the ability of the, like you said, this defense in depth, the, these volunteer intelligence networks, having resources at the right moment, at the right time, even though you're a much smaller force with a smaller combat capabilities. But even as we paint this picture, which is hard, right? So th- th- there's so much going on in these early weeks, even beyond occupation, when the Russians kind of get run into a brick wall of Ukrainians, like in the in the southwest in Markov, which we know the Russians make it there day two, three, and actually occupy and the Ukrainians are able, civilian Ukrainians are able to get inside of the Russian unsecure communication. But oh, by the way, there's a, a separate Ukrainian unit coming from the West, the like 11th Mechanized Brigade and the Airborne who are stationed just outside Kiev, not too far away. They're now smashing against Russians who are starting to get cut off from the logistical supplies. So I think that's an important moment that Markov shows is like these forces in Bucha that are trying to get in, the Ukrainians are also getting in behind them. So now they're starting to run out of gas. They're starting to run out of ammo. They're starting to you know, disintegrate. Yeah. And, and one of the other things, again, we didn't study this so much while we were in the in Kiev itself, but one of the things to consider in this war too, right? In the past, all in, you know, all this intelligence, satellite imagery and stuff, that was all intelligence. Major nations had that, but that was another thing we're kind of seeing play out on a daily basis, right? I mean, you know, ISW's got their map showing how far the, the Russians have advanced and they're actually looking at imagery and doing other things to see that. And so Ukrainians have this available, they have it available. We've, we've, we've heard about, you know, the, the Google maps and how, you know, it's it's saying the traffic is dead stopped on the Russian, you know, where they're advancing from. And, and, and it, but it, it's interesting to kind of learn or to study and to see how much of these, you, you know, non-state entities, things like Elon Musk applying satellites for the Ukrainians so they can get on the internet, you know, who knows how much anonymous or others have targeted Russian cyber capabilities to, you know, impede their ability to, you know, command and control and communicate. So that's, it's something that's, I think been understudied at large, try to understand how significant that played in the defense of, of the capital in the early days of the war. Yeah. And, and you're on the urban warfare project podcast. So the complexity of the urban terrain smashing against military task. This is one of the greatest examples of the modern history, not only the complexity of the, the physical terrain, but also the population, right? As you have an entire population with this many tens of thousands, if not just thousands of civilians joining the fight that starts to, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I think Mike Tyson said that the Russians start to face resistance. But I agree. I think you're commenting on this, the use of satellite imagery to identify convoys, but not having the the actual intelligence or the understanding on the ground of what's actually happened there, right? That this 40 kilometer, 40 mile convoy that was a logistical aspect and, and being able to cut the Russians off from that. But it wasn't like, we'll say in the report, what was really happening with it. So we're actually running out of time. And I know we spent a lot of time on the east side of Dnipro because while there was heavy fighting in the west and these moments that create the Battle of Kiev, you know, Hostomel, Bucha, Markov, all these key moments that add up to Russian defeat 
decisive defeat to where they had to change all their strategic goals. There was, you know, action in in many of the areas east of the Dnipro and Bravari and places like that. And there's a you know key ambush on the on the main road that, like you said, was which I can't imagine as an old company commander being in a a defensive anti armor ambush on a bridge, and but then to have hundreds of volunteers to my left and to the right who have joined the fight and said, I want to be a part of this. That's incredible. I can imagine that. But we do have to talk about, because we did make our way all the way up north to the Russian retreat, right? So we, you know, we'll cover in the report all aspects of these kind of phases, right? The initial invasion, the the key moments, the the occupation, and then the counterattacks, which do happen. And, and the Russians make a decision that we're going to withdraw, you know, under contact withdraw. But they did do some things to make sure that they had the ability to do that. And I don't want to give Russians any credit, but we did make our way up north, you know, northwest up to Ivankiv, where there were a key bridge that the Russians from day one knew they needed to hold at all costs to make sure they had a, a backdoor. Yeah, I mean, probably this biggest surprise was how well the Russian retrograde or retreat operation was. I mean, talking to Ukrainians, I mean, they, they said that was actually a well-executed operation, kind of contrary to everything else they had done up until that point. And so right over two or three days in, in, you know, in early April, late March, you know, they pulled all the way back from Kiev and, and pulled all the way out of the country on both sides of the river. And, and on the West, as you described, right, there was a bridge. I mean, we saw a lot of bridges that had been, you know, dis- disabled or, or destroyed by the by the Ukrainians, but the Russians, in this case, the Ukrainians hadn't destroyed the bridge early on, and the Russians destroyed the bridge as their last forces pulled across it, and it was very effective. As I said, I was an engineer, and it was, a, you know, a textbook uh, operation how they took the bridge down. But you know, again, kind of going back in time, I mean, you know, the intelligence was saying that the Ukraine, uh, the Russians were retreating uh, from the city. But the Ukrainians that were defending the city didn't believe it because actually the the Russian artillery strikes increased to probably the highest level to date, basically just covering their withdrawal. So they actually thought the Russians were advancing. And by the time they they figured out, the Russians had basically pulled back and had downed the bridges and, you know, fled across the border uh, without taking, you know, more significant losses than they would have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I actually talked to somebody after we returned, I won't mention who it was, who said that's pretty standard Russian doctrine that, that we we've known they've been practicing for a while is that ability to to withdraw under contact with the heavy use of artillery in a very practiced, very rehearsed operation. So maybe they didn't practice invading a, a major city as much as they did withdrawing, but it was like you said, textbook Russian doctrine, use of heavy fires, and very deliberate, controlled withdrawal while also making sure nobody can follow you. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I that was probably their best performance of the whole first 30 days with their actual retreat operation, which is kind of ironic. I think we're going to end it here and leave a little bit of an appetite, hopefully, for the next podcast, which will hopefully break down more systematically the overall battle. But I wanted to give our listeners a kind of initial, our initial set of our experience traveling into Kiev and all they got to have to thank all the people that helped with that trip to make sure that under, under our limited time taking us to the exact moments and, and to the, the people, I can't thank all the people from the, our, the, the Twitter water space to the people on the ground, our drivers, everybody that helped facilitate this combat study 
getting into all these locations to to walk the ground, drive through them, to understand the approaches, all of that. I can't thank them enough. And and thank you for coming on the show. And I look forward to our next talk. Yeah, I just have a couple of closing comments. One one on the volunteers again, because that was a significant part of this. It, you know, most of those could not pass an army, you know, U.S. Army physical fitness test or a medical, you know, thing, but they were still effective fighters. And with a 10% of the GDP of Russia and 10%, you know, what they can spend on defense, it's a cost-effective way to mount an actual good defense of the nation. Large standing militaries are, are expensive and it's a way to supplement that. And the second piece, right, is, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of people that, that, hey, let's just avoid cities. You, you know, we're not going to, we don't want to fight in them because they're too difficult. But once again, this war showed that the city of Kiev was a tactical operational strategic level target, right? It was where Russia wanted to go. Why? Because it's the head of government. Uh, and, and so it was a, a critical target for them. And, and that's why understanding cities, whether defending them or attacking them is so important. It's like you're an urban warfare guy. It's like we wrote a book on understanding urban warfare together. Got that right. So I was just, only thing I'll add to that part about the volunteers is you know, I have studied and, and continue to study this idea of resistance and having your civilian population gain in the in the worst case scenario to defend their way of life, to defend their nation. But what was amazing here that I didn't know, and you did because you had visited many times, how that had been resourced and had been planned. Because you can tell people to go out and resist, but you, you don't give them a weapon. They didn't have access to military weapons, and then, then it's not going to be very helpful. Yep, without a doubt. I mean, having those truckloads of weapons waiting on the 24th and 25th of February was critical to the defense of the city. All right. Well, Liam, thanks a lot for joining this show, and I, and I look forward to our next talk. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out Individualized other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.